We're studying the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 8, as you know, and I want to pick up with verse 31. Now, it's really important as we start verse 31 to remember what happened in the previous paragraph, verses 27 through 30, mm-hmm. uh, because that, that, that's what ties the two together. Jesus uh, had been with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of, of Bethsaida. Uh, it's in Gentile territory and so on. And he'd ask them, who do the people say that I am? And then Peter uh, answers with that extraordinary claim, you are the Christ. Uh, the full response is in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew uh, chapter 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And we talked a little bit about that last week, but let me review that again. Because although his answer is correct, you are the Christ. Remember, Christ is the Greek word for the Messiah. You are the Messiah. They don't completely understand all that that means. And so Jesus is going to teach them in this very next verse, verse 31, he begins to teach them, you must understand the full orb meaning of what the Messiah is going to do. And so that's why Mark correctly, and that's really helpful to remember that, he begins verse 31 with, and he began to teach them. Now, as you know from English grammar, and is a coordinating conjunction, so it's connecting what he just said. And remember, in the original, there were no chapters, there were no verses. So you read, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, and he began to teach them. So all of those are linked together. What did he teach them? What was the content? That the Son of Man must, now let's stop there, that Jesus uses the title to refer to himself, the Son of Man, is of extraordinary importance. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 which is one of the great messianic passages of Old Testament prophecy. So Jesus is intentionally using that. And all those guys that are listening to him, and even today, 2,000 years later, a Jewish person reading this, whether they accept it or not, is not the point, would understand Son of Man is a messianic title. Son of Man refers to one like the Son of Man went up to the Ancient of Days and received dominion, authority, and a kingdom. That's Daniel 7.13. But in addition to all that is involved with the Son of Man ruling, having dominion authority over the world the Father gives him, something else must happen. Must. That's a Greek word, de, D-E-I. It's a very strong word of intentionality. This is the plan. He must, what? Suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is the first time that Jesus reveals to his disciples what's going to happen when they go to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again. So he is completing their understanding of the Messiah. That's why, again, you connect verse 30 with verse 31. Jesus is further explaining what's going to happen to the Messiah. 
Now, in a sense, because most of these guys were students of the Old Testament, they they should have they should have understood that, because the Old Testament text I'm thinking of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, for example, said this was going to happen to the Messiah. But you know these guys remember one of the themes I've been stressing, the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is, and so he is completing his explanation of Messiah, who Messiah is, and what Messiah is going to do. I am the Messiah, but I'm going to tell you what else has to happen to me. And he said this in verse 32 now, and he said this plainly, which is kind of an interesting aside that Mark is making. There is no ambiguity here. There's no lack of clarity. In other words, what Jesus is saying is so clearly understood. And then we have this fascinating response of Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now try to, try to get the context here. <laughs> Here's Jesus, the incarnate God, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of Man, being rebuked by Peter. <laughs> Why? Because Peter is saying, no, Messiah, no, Jesus. You, you can't let this happen to you. And it's just, it's an amazing aspect of Peter's impulsiveness, he acts quickly. He says what he thinks. And so then, notice verse 33. This is piercing, but turning and seeing his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Verse 32, Peter rebukes Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, just make sure we're clear here. Peter is not incarnated by Satan here. What Jesus is saying is, Peter, you are reflecting the position of Satan. The one thing Satan doesn't want me to do is go to the cross. Because as we will see this later, and it's in other major parts of the New Testament, the cross is the irreversible defeat of Satan. Once Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected, Satan's days are numbered. And so well, all Jesus is saying, it's a figurative language, all Jesus is saying is, Peter, your language is reflecting the position of Satan. And we've talked about this before. Your mind is not on eternal, infinite things. Your mind is on temporal, physical things. You can't imagine me going to the cross. But in terms of the eternal, infinite plan of God to secure the redemption of the human race, I must do this. Go back to verse 31. I must do this. But here again, this progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. This will all come together in the minds of the disciples and Peter, because he's kind of the primary spokesman, when Jesus is resurrected. It is the resurrection that will absolutely confirm in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls, who Jesus is. 
And then you see the extraordinary change in Peter in the sermon he preaches on Pentecost in Acts 2, which we studied a couple years ago. So I want you to understand this paragraph. It's, it's, a, it's connected with what the Lord said in verse 30. Don't tell anyone about this. You don't fully understand what Messiah is going to do. And he further explains it. And then you have the impulsive response of Peter. And you have, again, the affirmation by Jesus. Stop thinking just at the physical and temporal level. Think at the eternal, spiritual, infinite level. This is the plan. I must go to the cross. And he is reflecting what Satan. Satan attempted, we talked about this last week. Satan has tempted Jesus. Matthew 4 is our fullest account of that. Tempted Jesus so that Jesus would receive what the Father promised to him, dominion and authority over this planet, and he wouldn't have to go to the cross. All he had to do was bow the knee to Satan. Well, that means Satan's win. Well, Satan's not going to win. And so Jesus is simply saying, Peter, your words reflect the position of Satan. Satan doesn't want me to go to the cross. And so it's a, it's a marvelous, content-filled rebuke of Peter. So with that, Jesus then begins to discuss a call to discipleship. So let me stop there. This isn't hard, but let me stop. Do you have any questions? about? Jim, uh, yeah, um, you know, if, if we're talking to our children about one day uh, we are going to pass, I think that's kind of a hard conversation to have because they don't think that way. They think somehow that we are going to be with them forever. And that's that's not how it is. And so they're, they're kind of on the learning curve. Don't you think that an appreciation of, of who he is? Well, yeah, I mean, it, as I've said a number of times, the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. And Peter's impulsive response is, is that kind of a response. He, he should know that this is the destiny of Messiah. But obviously, <laughs> he doesn't, and obviously, he is acting just like a, a child, in a sense, or a teenager, or even a young adult, when uh, parents, as your illustration indicates, you try to explain to them that there is coming a day when I'm going to go to be with the Lord, and I'm not going to be with you anymore. And that is very difficult. I mean, it, I, my parents are both gone, but I remember a number of times just trying to think, at some point, mom and dad are not going to be here. And they both, you know, they lived into their 90s. And they both were quite sick when they died. But you still, it's, it's hard to envision that. But there's more to this conversation than just like a parent and a child. This is their Messiah, the long-promised Messiah that they've been waiting for. And Jesus is trying to completely fill in all of their lack of understanding of what Messiah has to do. And Peter, again, is responding. In a, it's just a typical Peter response, impulsively. And so Jesus, in the front of the other disciples, as it's very clear there in verse 33, he rebukes Peter publicly. 
Peter, you're thinking like Satan. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and so it's, uh, but it, it's understandable. It's totally understandable that Peter and presumably the other disciples find it absolutely incredulous that Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the spiritual leadership. He's going to be killed. And then top that off, he's going to raise, raised in three days. Now, I mean, that is an awful lot to internalize and accept, let alone understand. Okay. Verse 34 through verse, uh, in, in a sense, really, beginning of verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, but through the end of the chapter, this is very, very, very important. This is a call to discipleship, not a call to salvation. Jesus is not issuing as he talks through verse 34, 35, and 36, etc. He is not issuing a call to salvation. The call to salvation is one word, believe. The call to discipleship follows your faith commitment to Jesus. Being called to salvation is not the same as being called to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, they're inextricably linked. The one follows the other. But Jesus is not issuing the call to salvation. He's issuing the call, be my disciple. And this, let's put it in the language of the Apostle Paul. The call to salvation is justification. The call to discipleship is sanctification. And so you, you absolutely must keep these things separate, or you get confused about what is Jesus saying. And so I want to make sure that that's clearly understood as we begin this paragraph. I'll repeat it for about the fourth time. This is not a call to salvation. This is a call to discipleship. This is a call to follow Jesus. This is a call to walk with Jesus. This is what's subsequent to accepting the gift of salvation. So with that introduction, let's, let's look. <clears throat> and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, so... This is the, the 12 plus a larger crowd that's following him. We have no idea how many. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, let's take that apart. Jim, I'm a little confused. Oh. Where are you reading from? I'm in verse 34 of chapter 8. It's in chapter 9. Uh, you don't want to be in chapter 9. You want to be in chapter 8. Yeah, I can probably follow you now. Thank you. Okay, you bet. All right, let's take this apart now. If anyone would come after me, again, you know, that is an invitation to discipleship, a call to discipleship. That involves three things. Again, I'm going to put it in the language of the Apostle Paul. Sanctification. Let him deny himself. That is, you are beginning a new life. You are a new creation in Christ. And the first aspect of that is a negative. 
You deny, you set aside the selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent life you've lived. You've come to faith in me. You put your trust in me. Now, you want to walk with me? You are going to now do away with the old habits and patterns of life. You are setting aside the selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent life you've lived. Secondly, take up his cross. Now, again, for you and me today in 2021, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But back then it did, because that was a symbol. Taking up your cross, a Roman cross, was an evidence, was a symbol, was a figure of absolute submission. Well, take up your cross, submission. Where there was rebellion in your life, there's now submission to Christ. You are now doing away with that selfish, self-centered lifestyle, and following Jesus, you're submitting. Where there was rebellion against God, there's now submission to God, and follow me. And by the way, that's a command, follow me. It's, it's, it's a continuous imperative. I know I'm using grammatical language here, but it's a, a continuous imperative. This is not something you do once. This is something you continually do day after day after day after day. So let's let's put it let's put it in the language again of the Apostle Paul. You have put your faith in Christ. You are justified. You begin now the process of sanctification. That's got three aspects to it. Number one, you are beginning to set aside your selfish, self-centered lifestyle. Number two, where there had been rebellion in your heart, there's now submission to God in your heart. And every single day, you are making the decision. You are re, recommitting as a decision to follow Jesus. It's not once. Salvation is once. The discipleship, the, the sanctification is a daily regimen, every day. So you are continually saying, I am following you, Jesus. That is the sense of that verb. I am saying I am continually following you, Jesus. So this it's it's really quite marvelous, actually. But it's it's a wonderful description of the change that occurs in our lives once we put our faith in Christ. Now you look at those three: deny yourself, take up the cross, follow me. And again, that's in the continuous nature, the verb there. It's a continuous imperative. It's not just once, you do this every day. But, I mean, you look at that and you say, wow, this is, this is transformational. I'm setting aside my old. I'm, I'm changing from a rebellious aspect and demeanor toward God to a submission to God, and I am continually committing to following Jesus. Now, what follows in verse 35 and verse 36 if Jesus explains this, in the Greek, there's a little gar there, G-A-R, that begins verse 3. He's explaining this now. I want to explain Jim, this. Jim, could I, could I stop you for just a second? You said you're talking about the take up the cross, and you're saying that's submission to God, right? And follow me, that's 
follow the example of Christ. Is that what? what yeah, uh, yeah, yes. It's a continuous, continuous commitment day after day after day to follow Jesus. But the, the submission to God is, the, is you're making a distinction there, too. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay, good, got it. It's a, it's a negative, I'm denying self, it's a positive, I'm taking up the cross, and the result is a continuous following of Jesus, day after day after day after day after day. I like to put it this way, I'm walking in loving obedience with Christ. That's a continuous thing. You don't do that just once. Every single day of your life, you affirm this, because we are a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, I now am identified with Christ. I'm in Christ 242 times in the New Testament. That's who we are now. Therefore, we will end this selfish, self-centered life. We will end our rebellion against God. We are now continually committed to following Jesus, walking in loving obedience with him. And so Jesus now explained, he further explains what he's talking about. For whoever would save his life must lose it. And whoever loses his self-centered life for my sake, and the gospel's sake, will save it. And his use of the word sozo there, save, is, is, is that process of sanctification, that continuous process. This is, this is what's happening to you. You are now, you are now a whole new person. Your priorities, your, your identity, everything about you has changed. And you are ending one life and beginning a new life. That old life, again, I'll use the language of the Apostle Paul in a number of places in his writings. I'm setting aside, I'm taking off my old. I'm putting on my new. And he says, whoever loses his self-centered life for my sake will save it. will experience the blessings of the salvation in all its stages, justification, sanctification, and, and, and glorification. And he adds a second explanation, a second illustration in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, and forfeit his soul. And so, again, you, I mean, in the context of what he's talking about, that's kind of easy. It, it, but it's illustrating, again, this fundamental transformation that has occurred in your life. What did you value before you came to Christ? The gain of the whole world, the material, temporal things of life. If that's your focus, but that's, that's what you are no longer embracing. Go back to deny himself. I am now denying this. This is not my priority anymore. What's my priority? Following Jesus. And then he uses a third illustration. For what can a man, in verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer, nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing you can do. And in his final illustration, 
For whoever is ashamed of me denies me in my words. In this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels? In other words, for the person who denied Jesus, not 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 following Jesus, as we, we read there in verse in verse 34, but being ashamed, denying Jesus. When it comes to the great white throne judgment, Jesus will deny you. And so you have this very important call to be the disciple of Jesus, to continually, daily walk in loving obedience with him. And this is what Jesus, if you go to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, what's the Great Commission? Make disciples. As you go, baptize and teach all that I have commanded you. Make disciples. You go to the end of Matthew 28, the imperative verb is make disciples. How do you make disciples? By going, baptizing, and teaching. Jesus is interested in making disciples. It begins with the act of salvation, where you make your faith commitment. In the language of the Apostle Paul, justification. But God, the Lord Jesus' perspective on this is an eternal perspective. Because you now begin the process of learning what it means to follow me. And your priorities change. Your focus changes. Your view of time changes. And you're no longer ashamed of me. You embrace me. You're no longer in rebellion against me. You follow me. You're walking in loving obedience. So he's using all of these illustrations to, in effect, say... This is what it's all about. The transformational life that God is calling us to, it begins with salvation. It continues with the call to discipleship, Paul's words. It begins with justification. It continues with sanctification. And then the, the, the tremendous promise that you know we will... We will be glorified. We will receive our new resurrected bodies, which is a little beyond this text. All right? Now, I've spent, well, it's about a quarter after. I spent about 15, almost 20 minutes on this. Are you with me on this? Any, any questions? You got it? Can I, yep. I just interject? I'm talking too much today, but I, I Kelly Graham, uh, in an article today uh, that I read, I, he, he addresses the unpardonable sin. And, um, you know, like I mentioned in the class, I had a teacher who said, I, there's no way I can, I will be able to go to heaven. I've, I've committed sin. I mean, all of sin and fallen short. But the thing is that here, um, Billy Graham's comment was that the unpardonable sin is rejecting Christ. That's, the unpardonable sin. And then when you die having rejected Christ, it, you slip into eternity. Um, and I think that's why we have these meetings and, and come together and encourage one another that we are not lost because of sin. We, are, we need to reconcile. But um, I just... I don't know. I, I think sometimes we are harder on ourselves 
than what Christ would be or God would be on us because of his word to us. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, there really wasn't a question. It was just a series of comments, but I, I don't disagree. And that does fit with the end of the, the paragraph in verse 38 uh, of what Jesus really says. Um, if you reject all of this, uh, I will reject you. What is really, in terms of Revelation 20, the great white throne. Today, as the book of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Okay, Woody, I think you had a question. I th thought I heard you. Uh, no, I didn't have one. Thank you. Oh, okay. All right. Then look at the last verse, which in some ways, or really the first verse of chapter 9, which in some ways is really the end of this, this section. And he, the he there's Jesus, said to them, which would be the 12 plus that crowd, truly, now remember, when we translate that truly, that means amen, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. And I, you know, for you and me, we read this, but also think of these guys hearing this. What? 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 Because he's just talked about discipleship. He just talked about end time judgment. And he says, amen, truly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God has come with power. What in the world does that mean? Now, Mark is explicit. The next verse, and after six days. So Mark, he doesn't, he rarely does this. Mark is making a very strong temporal connection here. Six days later, something happened, which fulfills what Jesus said. What Jesus is talking about in verse 1 is fulfilled in transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John see Jesus in all of his glory as a manifestation of the kingdom of God, this is what Jesus will look like in the coming kingdom. And these three fulfill what Jesus just said. Now, does Peter get it this way? Yes, he does. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. He talks about seeing the transfigured Jesus and that impact it had on him. So, and, and Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 1, and, and he understood what had happened. So Mark is making sure, and that temporal marker is so important, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, remember, as, as you go back to last week, and I briefly mentioned this week, they're in Caesarea Philippi. They're up north. They're outside of Galilee. They're north of Galilee. They're only a few miles from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in the eastern Mediterranean, the highest mountain in Israel. Today, Jewish people ski on Mount Hermon. It's the only place they can ski. It's high enough where snow is contained. And so Jesus takes them to the highest mountain peak. I believe it's Mount Hermon. 
because it's not that far from Caesarea Philippi. And he was transfigured before them. Now, that word transfigured, we get our word metamorphosis from that. Metamorpho is the Greek word. So what they are seeing is Jesus reflecting his pre-incarnate glory. They are seeing, Peter, James, and John are seeing the glorified Jesus Christ. And the next verse helps us to understand that. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now that is an unusual way to put it, but he's, he, Mark, is explaining the radiance and penetrating glory of Jesus that they saw. It's so white, it's so radiantly white, his clothes, his robes so radiantly white, nothing on earth, even the most expensive bleach you could ever buy, could never have made it that radiantly white. What did they see? They saw what Jesus surrendered. Jesus did not surrender any of the attributes of God. He remained omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's, he's God, but he set aside his glory. These men momentarily saw Jesus' glory restored. They saw what Jesus will look like when he returns. They saw what Jesus will look like throughout all eternity, when you and I are walking with him in eternity. It's exactly the same language you see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, and in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is taken into the throne room of God, and he tries to write down what he sees, just like John tried to write down what he saw in Revelation 1 and Revelation 20. So it, this is the—Jesus is transfigured. He now manifests the gradient glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God is now manifested. And how Mark puts it, it's so radiantly white. No human being, no matter how much bleach you use, could ever see something, could ever produce something so radiantly, penetratingly white. They see Jesus. And then something else happens. And there appeared, in verse 4 now, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 31, explains to us that they were talking about his coming suffering, death, and resurrection. All right, why Elijah, why Moses? Well, these are the two perhaps two of the most outstanding figures of the Old Testament. I believe, and this is not original with me, I believe they represent the law and the prophets. Obviously, Moses is the deliverer of Israel, and he's the one who receives the law from God and gives it to Israel. Elijah is one of the earliest prophets. He is the earliest name before the writing prophets of the 8th century B.C. Elijah, and then his his mentee, Elisha, during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah was the one on Mount Carmel who, remember, did that tremendous battle with the god, the Baal, and so on. 
And so this is rep they represent they represent the law and the prophets. But in addition, Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4 says that Elijah will be a part of Messiah's um, unveiling, of Messiah coming. And so it's, it's, a, it's an, it was an absolutely incredible thing for these three men to see. They see Jesus in his glory, and they see two of the most outstanding figures of the Old Testament, Elijah, the first great prophet, and they see Moses, the deliverer and the lawgiver, talking with Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, Luke 9.31 tells us they were talking about the, the, the coming uh, suffering uh, cross and resurrection of Jesus. So, I mean, just, <laughs> you know, when you and I get to heaven, you and I are in the, in the, we may see something like this. We can say Jesus talking with Elijah and Moses, but you know what else? You and I are going to be able to talk about, talk with Elijah and Moses. I, I just, I, I think about that a lot. What, what, what will we be privileged to do in the coming kingdom? We're going to be with these giants too. I believe in the coming kingdom. Moses is going to host a Bible study on the Pentateuch. Now I think Paul is going to host a Bible study on Romans. And Elijah is going to host a Bible study on 1 Kings. I'm making all that up. I doubt, I don't know, but I just, I, we have no idea. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor the mind of man conceived all that God has prepared for those who love him. But these three are privileged. And as I mentioned earlier in 2 Peter 1, you read about the impact this had on Peter. All right, now, what follows is the response of Peter. I'm in verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, as you know, that means teacher. It is good that we're here. That has got to be one of the most classic understatements of the Bible. You know what? It's good that we're here. I mean, it's like, duh. But anyway, it's good that we're here. And then look what he says. Let us make three tents. You could legitimately translate that three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, there's been a lot of written and discussed about Peter's comment there. Three tents, three tabernacles. What, what, what is he thinking here? What's Peter thinking? Well, at one level, Peter doesn't want this to end. Peter, Peter wants this to endure. And so let me make some structures that are going to allow you guys to stay here a long time. But others have also suggested there's a deeper meaning to this. Jesus had said in verse 1, Some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom in all its power. They are seeing it. And it tells us in the book of Ezekiel, 40 through 48, and some other places in the Old Testament, that in the coming kingdom, we will celebrate some of the feasts of Israel and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of those. So, as some have suggested, perhaps Peter is thinking that. Let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, Lord. Let me, let me gather a bunch of sticks here and make so one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. 
And as soon as Jesus, excuse me, as soon as Peter said this, verse 7 occurs, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. It is not beyond understanding to perceive that that cloud is the Shekinah cloud of God, that great Shekinah that, that was hovering over Israel during the, the exodus from Egypt and during the wilderness wonders, etc. as God took care of them. So it says, uh, this, this Shekinah cloud, and out of it comes the Father, and the Father speaks. This is the true meaning of this event. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So you have a second major proclamation from heaven. The first was at the baptism. When after Jesus was baptized, he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, has descended upon him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Exactly the same language, combining Deut uh, Psalm 2-7 with, with Genesis 22. This is my beloved Son. This is my covenant Son. This is the Son. Listen to him. And so that's the main point, the primary meaning of this event. This is another validation of who Jesus is. These three are beneficent. Are beneficent. They, they benefit from this. These three, their understanding of Jesus is enhanced by this, the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. And so the, 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 the incident ends with verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they, Peter, James, and John, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus is more important than Elijah and Moses. Jesus is the authorized prophet and revelation of Almighty God. As Jesus will say, if you want to, to Philip in John 14, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. John 1, 1 through 18, Gospel of John 1, 1 through 18. Jesus exegetes the Father. Jesus explains the Father. Jesus, just, Jesus manifests and illustrates and details, unravels and, and explains and exegetes to the Father. You want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. And so standing alone, Jesus is on Mount Hermon, these three, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And for about the fifth time, did this impact Peter? It did. Read in 2 Peter chapter 1 the impact this made on Peter. So this is a fantastic passage. It parallels what's in uh, Matthew's gospel as well. It, it parallels the, the incredible importance of the transfiguration of Jesus. It is revelatory. It's further explaining. It's further manifesting physically in a tactile way that they could see. This is Jesus. 
the revelation of the Father, the, the prophet, at Deuteronomy 18.15, the final revelation of who God is. And so these, yeah. privilege, these three are privileged to see something. Yeah. You and I will see, but not yet. We wait for the return of our Savior. All right, now there's a lot more to this, not chapter, verse 9 and 5, but let me stop there. I'd like to ask Is there anything about the transfiguration you want to ask me about? I, I do. I want to know why it was Peter, James, and John. Weren't his other disciples there also? And, and No, they were not here on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were at the bottom of the mountain. They're going yes. to come up in verse 9 and following. Woody, uh, we, we don't know. There's no way we can answer that question. But let me, I, if I had a board, I would write it on the board. But when you study the Gospels, you, you see that there were like three concentric circles in terms of how Jesus looked at disciples. Early, or very early on, but you see this, but the initial concentric circle is three. It's Peter, James, and John. Then the next concentric circle is the 12. Then the next concentric circle is the 70. In Matthew, it tells us that Jesus sent out 70. They're not named. We don't know who they are. And the next concentric circle would be the 120 that are gathered in the upper room uh, facility in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then the final concentric circle is everybody else, you and me. But what he, the Bible doesn't tell us why did, why did he choose just those three as his inner center concentric circle, the, the, the special circle. Uh, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And it would seem reasonable to conclude that the other nine would have been somewhat jealous of these three, but that the Lord sovereignly chooses, and those concentric circles are the way to think about that sphere of influence of Jesus in his public ministry, and, and now for you and me, we're in the outer, because we're all coming into that relationship with Jesus and by faith and so on. That's the best I can do in answering your question. That's pretty good. Thank you. All right. And again, I would, if you're really interested in, in, in uh, tracking some of this, if, if you read Revelation 1, 14 and 15, Revelation 24 through 6, and Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called to be the prophet uh, to Israel, uh, they're very similar language as they're trying to describe using human terms, human words, what they're seeing. And uh, undoubtedly, as I've told you before, the main source for Mark in writing his gospel was Peter. So Peter told him about all this. Peter explained all this to him. And so he's writing down um, as he records it in his gospel. All right, well, let's continue. We have a few more minutes here. In verse 9, <clears throat> through the end of this section, which, which goes through uh, verse uh, 13, is now like part two of this transfiguration event. And as they were coming down the mountain, I argued earlier, it's Mount Hermon, way up north, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. And th that is exactly what they do. Peter will follow that command. But then he records it in First Second uh, Peter 1. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what was this rising from the dead might mean. Isn't that remarkable? They still, they still don't get it. 
they still are not really embracing the teaching of the resurrection. They will, but the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. And they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? Now, where would the, remember, the scribes or Pharisees were the primary ones who taught the law. They copied the law and they taught the law. And so, is it right that the scribes are teaching this? Yes. It's in Malachi 3, 1 through 4. It's in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. That before or accompanying the coming of the Messiah is Elijah. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 12, and he, Jesus, said to them, undoubtedly all of the twelve, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Okay, now let's go to verse 14, excuse me, verse 15, and work our way back. So they posed the question, Jesus, we just saw Elijah on the mount. We just came down. We just saw Elijah up there. Our scribes have been teaching us that Elijah must come. Is that right? Jesus responds, I tell you, I'm going to to work my way backwards. Verse 15, I want to tell you Elijah has come, and they did to him whatsoever they pleased as written of him. Who is Elijah that's come? John the Baptist. John the Baptist dressed like Elijah. John the Baptist lived where Elijah lived in part of his time when he's running from King Ahab. And so Malachi chapter 4, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, the last of the prophets. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 connects Elijah with the coming of the Messiah. And so it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating validation. Yes, Elijah has come. John the Baptist was the Elijah-like figure, announcing and proclaiming my coming. But let's work our way back now to verse 13 and verse 14. I have a question. Uh, yes. Um, is so this is a um, a model of a type of uh, literally Elijah of what John the Baptist is a an Elijah type figure fulfilling. I'm using your language, Ross. The an Elijah like figure. And when John, if you go and we saw that when we were in the first chapter of Mark, but you can see it in the other gospel accounts too, that John the Baptist intentionally dresses like Elijah and eats the same food when Elijah was running from King Ahab. He's intentionally doing that. So he's positionally putting himself there. Is Does the language in Malachi indicate that it is a form of or type of, or does it say that Elijah... It just says personally must come. Well, it it, it says personally. That's one that's always bugged me because I've gone back and forth. Well, I was, it, but you, it's like a lot of things in terms of prophecy. You have a literal, 
clear fulfillment of that, but you also have a figurative fulfillment. Russ, in a very real sense, you just had the literal fulfillment of it. Elijah's up on the mount, top of Mount Hermon talking with Jesus. <laughs> so you have oh, a literal and a figurative fulfillment of the prophecy. That, the, that's okay. true. The, I forgot about that. That is true. So, I mean, so there, <clears throat> Jesus is saying, Elijah has come. We just were with him up at the top of the mountain, but also <laughs> back there. But notice, now I'm going, I'm working my way backwards now, to what Jesus says in verse 12 and following, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Malachi chapter 4. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And so notice what Jesus is doing. Here's another teachable moment. You guys just heard about Elijah. You saw him up on the mount. And I want to remember, yes, they're right. Elijah just come. But he's connecting it with what follows. What he had just taught them earlier, which we began our study with, when he today, when he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be resurrected. Jesus says, yes, Elijah must come first. And don't forget the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Just like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Now listen, what's Jesus saying? As the coming of Elijah is a fulfillment of prophecy, my suffering and my being treated with contempt is a fulfillment of prophecy. What prophecies? The ones that are in Isaiah 53 and the ones that are in Psalm 22. So you guys, this, this is fantastic. You guys are starting to get it. All of this is part of the plan. You just saw Elijah up in the mountain, three of you did, and that is a partial fulfillment of prophecy, Malachi 4, but Elijah has also come in the person of John the Baptist, figuratively speaking. He acted like John. He acted like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He said the same things that Elijah would say. So Elijah's come. But don't forget, that's the beginning. I must go to the cross. I must suffer. I must experience contempt just like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 said. So Jesus keeps, now he keeps bringing this back to his disciples. This is where we're headed. This is where this is going to all culminate in my rejection, being treated with contempt, my execution, and my being resurrected from the dead. So this, this section which we've studied here this morning is, is really a, a, an incredibly important section as far as Mark is concerned. It began with Peter's affirmation in Caesarea Philippi of who Jesus is. You're the Christ. And it continues with Jesus adding, but you have to understand the Messiah involves going to the cross, being, being rejected, dying, and then being resurrected. And then the teaching about discipleship, and he takes the three guys up to Mount Hermon. They see the kingdom of God in its glory manifested in Jesus. And then he reminds them again, this is the beginning of the rescue plan. Death, burial, and resurrection of me, but also all that will follow as a result of that. And so it's, it's just a tremendously important section of Scripture in keeping the focus on, on who Jesus is, why he's here, and what these guys must understand about Jesus. And they're slowly, progressively putting it together.
All right. Got it? Well, I'll tell you what. I think I'm going to stop because uh, we don't meet next week. We don't meet the week after that. And we'll regather, I believe it's on the 8th of September. So I'll pick up then with verse 14. I'm not going to start it because I only have about two minutes here. So I'll pick up right away with verse 14. And I'll try to connect it. Why does this miracle follow? What is going on here? And we'll get into that in, in, in a couple of weeks when I return. All right? Well, I'm going to pray, and then I'll let you guys go, and I'll see you in, uh, in several weeks. Um, I will be enjoying a number of days with my grandchildren. So I love you to be with you guys, but I'd much rather be with them if I have a choice, particularly since I haven't seen them in two, two and a half years. All right, I'm going to pray. Father, we're grateful for the day that we've had here of study. This is a marvelous section of Scripture. Uh, the importance of the transfiguration can, cannot be minimized. They are seeing Jesus in all his glory. And it's had such an impact on Peter as he records for us in 2 Peter 1. But it also is important for us. It's similar to the language we see in Revelation, Isaiah 6, and other places. How do you put in words, human words, the manifestation of the glory of God? That's what they saw. And Mark's trying to record what Peter told him. So, Lord, this is a reminder of who Jesus is. He's not just a good man, a great man. He's God in the flesh. And what he set aside temporarily, his glory, is restored to him when he went back to the Father. And when we see Jesus again, when he comes back for us, we will see him in his glory. That's a tremendous promise. It's a marvelous thing to think about. And we are just so thankful that we have the privilege of studying the Word of God together. Be with these men in all of the business of their lives, help them in their connections with people, help them in their work if they're still employed, help them in their day-to-day -day activities. Lord, as, as we often pray, and all we do, we want to represent you well, as strong men of faith, committed to what you're committed to. Pray this in the Son's name. Amen. Thanks, Jim. Enjoy. Have a good day. Yeah,